Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. Talk about a force to be reckoned with. You're about to meet one hell of a creative mover and shaker. In the aftermath of the Cultural Revolution, Anne Hu was one of the first students to come to the United States from mainland China. She did so in 1979 in San Francisco, where she went to community college, and then eventually transferring to NYU. After graduation, she began working in the New York headquarters of the Australian conglomerate Elders. She then went out on her own, starting media assets, and still serves as the company's president. And then became one of the co-founding investors of UT Starcom, which at one time was the second largest cell phone company in China. But then Anne switched gears, and in 1992 went back to college, taking film courses at NYU. In the years that followed, she has directed four features. Her debut, Shadow Magic, was one of the top box office hits in China, winning both the Chinese Academy Award and the Presidential Award for Best Film. Her latest feature, Confetti, is based on Anne's lived experiences dealing with discrimination. It chronicles the journey of Lan, who struggles with illiteracy, and her nine-year-old daughter, Mei Mei, who suffers from dyslexia, as they leave their small town in China to relocate to New York City. Written, produced, and directed by Anne, Confetti looks at the often silent struggles faced by many immigrant families. We're going to talk at length about this powerful film, but let's meet and get to know Anne Hu. Welcome and thanks so much for joining me remotely today. Hello, everyone. Sandy, thank you so much for making me look so good. (laughs) I don't make it up. I don't make it up. Tell us what it was like living in China. Oh, wow. That was a memory many years ago. Um, Because, I mean, China has changed so much. It's no longer what I uh, um, used to remember. And I constantly go back and forth. So, I mean, a lot of... uh, New images, of course, are pouring into my memory. And, uh, uh, but yet, you know, when you think about the place that I grew up, suddenly everything changes into black and white. Mm. You know, it was like that kind of a historical footage that really appears. It's like North Korea. Funny enough, though, when you think about, you know, like North Korea, you're thinking about misery, right? Right. I mean, right. Mo- most people would like, I mean, it will, if I think about North Korea, it strikes me as miserable, awful, and uh, fearful place mm-hmm. that, you know, you can go. And cut off from the rest of the world. And cut off from the rest of the world. I mean, you know, it's like, but once you are in it, if you are inside of the storm, the experience is totally different. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, when uh, inside of the storm, it's like your immediate space. Uh, a lot of times it's quiet. But when it hits you, it's like a, it's this sudden hit. But sure. you realize that everyone's hit. It's not just you. Right. So you're like going with everyone. And uh, um, so you are not as fearful as you would have been if you are all am I like totally alone or panicked. Like you see, well, if we die, we're all going to die, right? Right. So right. I mean, and and also there's a lot of joy, you know, like being together with this community. They sure. suffer together with you. Yeah. And so like growing up, you know, kids 
are not necessarily so aware of the political impact and also, you know, what the uh, personal impact really mean to them. For them, it's more like, oh, you don't have to go to school anymore. Your parents were sent away. You're all alone. You had to take care of yourself. Oh, my God. And then, you know, it's like, a uh, well, you know, we have five bucks left in the pocket to live to throughout the months. But I have control of this $5. I can buy anything I want to buy. And I want to buy it today and then <laughs> this, this time. I mean, this moment. I just want to have one good fancy meal. I mean, as fancy as it gets, right? Mm -hmm. So I think then you just enjoy that moment. Afterwards, how are you going to survive afterwards? You know, like you don't worry about it. So how are you going to survive? I mean, many times you're in, I mean, you're starving. So, I mean, you pray there's a dollar bill dropping off from the sky. So, so, I mean, it's like uh, the personal story. If you make it in a linear term, like to tell where I was, Okay, when the Cultural Revolution started, I was like uh, 12 years old. And then uh, uh, my parents were persecuted and they were sent to labor camps oh, relatively and uh, to different parts. Before the revolution, we all live in this uh, compound of the uh, Central Ministry of Propaganda, which is controlling part of this uh, Chinese communist government. You know, it's like uh, next to the central committee is the property of uh, propaganda, then it's a ministry of uh, organization. So you have two big uh, ministries on top of the whole country. Then you have ministry of culture, ministry of industry, and ministry of coal and so on and so forth. But the two top ministries, they're so close to the center of the communist uh, controlling unit. So we're basically living in this compound. So in this compound growing up, there are different departments. And my mother and father, they were there from very early on, starting in 1950, actually, when the communists just started the republic. So they were there like a very, very early. And so growing up, I never had to worry much until I was 12, you know, when Cultural Revolution started. And then my father was sent away. I mean, the entire ministry was turned upside down. And uh, many of the uh, people who used to be leaders and became like uh, those people, they were punished. They were responsible for whatever mistakes they made. Right. Persecuted, right? Yeah, right. So they were all sent away. And then my mother uh, was sent away later, so she was able to uh, secure us another residence. So we had to say goodbye to my father and so on and so forth. But then, then we were left with my mother for a year, and we moved to this another uh, compound that belonged to Chinese Academy of Social Science, where people like my mother, uh, they're like uh, intellects. They were like uh, top scholars in the country yeah. and they do all sort of uh, like a top research um, for all very sophisticated academic fields. Then she was sent away. So we lived in that compound in one room in apartment. Was it the city or was it the countryside? No, it was in the city. But then my brother was sent to the uh, countryside and I was sent to work in a, a very remote place, little restaurant. Like uh, you, tra- you have to travel about two hours away, uh, you know, from the city to the suburb in a restaurant, and uh, then later on to a hotel, uh, you know, as a receptionist. That ran for about nine years by ourselves. 
uh, and but we all had to return back to this apart this one room <laughs> inside. I mean, in this apartment uh, every day. So back and forth. But you know, like uh, that's how we grew up by ourselves, and uh, it's some kind of like uh, uh, harsh training in many ways because that actually gave me all the strengths growing up. Coming here, that's why every day I'm like asking, you know, not to ask what your country can do for you, <laughs> ask what you can do for your country, uh-huh. seriously. Okay, I think we got a lot. I mean, you know, like back to America, you got everything I feel, you know, you work for almost. And uh, uh, of course there are imperfections, but really I think, you know, we can do a lot more to improve the condition that we're living in and then to realize our dream. Well, why did you come here and how did you come here? Was this a goal for you for many years? Like, I got to get the hell out of here? In the later part of Cultural Revolution, uh, I think uh, there are uh, some kind of, uh, um, the the policies relaxed a little bit. So uh, there were like uh, news came in and uh, about uh, the outside world. So people began to hear things. And for the young people like us in Beijing, and uh, somehow um, we're related in a sense that everyone seems to know each other. So we pass things like uh, among ourselves, the books from the West that we saved from the past you know, the um, classic works and also the sometimes like you can get a, a copy of a Time magazine from some of the journalists uh, over there. And we all share. So we began to learn English by ourselves and we began to learn the uh, you know, curriculums of the high school and the university. So we began to be, I mean, people, we were very curious at that point. And then there was a a competition going on among ourselves as to who became the most learned Mm. person, you know, Mm -hmm. most informed in that sense. So um, once you you get a copy of New York Times or once you have a copy of uh, Godfather, a book, so you are just so fascinated by the world outside. I mean, is this a heaven? (laughs) (laughs) So it's like uh, incredibly attractive. And uh, uh, and it seems I think there was a uh, saying among the young kids at that point that if there are five airplanes leaving this country going to the U.S. and you know only one airplane, one plane will survive the journey, and uh, you know, and they said we would be jumping into any one of them, <laughs> you know, like sure. just to get to U.S. So I think that was the uh, sentiment then. So that was clearly a goal for you to get the hell out of there because you were feeling all the repression and all the rules and and you knew that there was obviously something better. It's like who wouldn't want to get out of North Korea? I mean, today, I mean, you know, it's that kind of feeling. And I'm sure people there, if they know what's going on, you know, even if they are like a brainwashed. But if the information gets in and they really know what's going on, uh, you know, like around the world, I would assume, you know, people would, many of them would want to leave. You had no support to do this. Uh, I had absolutely no support. I ran into a uh, a girlfriend of mine who went to primary school with me, and uh, uh, she immigrated with her her family to the U.S. earlier because they have relatives here and they can sponsor them. So they came. So she went back and I met her and I grabbed her. I said, 
can you sponsor me? <laughs> and then, you know, like, uh, then she said yes. And uh, just strangely enough, and it was 1979, and, uh, you know, after uh, Nixon's visit, and uh, so China opened up a little bit. So, you know, like, I grabbed that chance. You know, like, uh, I was, when I got to um, San Francisco, I was one of the three mainland students, you know, like in Bay Area. And today, I guess there's 300,000 mm-hmm. or there's 3 million. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so it was 1979. And this is amazing stuff. You did this all on your own and you left your family behind you. And your parents did know that you were coming here? They know. Of course, everyone's worried. But the thing is, just again, like if you're a person coming out of North Korea, would you or your family support that person to leave? You know, it's like the person takes a huge risk, but they know you're going for something maybe that will will bring hope eventually for the whole family or for, you know, at least for the person herself to have a a chance to have a better life. I mean, of course, totally sad. I mean, it's like anyone who abandons their hometown and to become, I mean, to leave for a new continent that they know nothing about and they have no one to um, turn to, it's totally scary. So you come here, you land in San Francisco, and that's on the other side of the, the country, and you wind up going to college at NYU. I mean, we'll get into your filmmaking career in a minute, but you should be the focus of a documentary or a feature. This is intense shit here. But anyway, so how do you pull this off? You go to New York City not knowing anybody and you apply to NYU? No, it was step by step. One thing leads to another. When I first got here, I uh, stayed in uh, this girlfriend's house for a short while, but not for a second that I wasn't anxious to try to become independent. You know, like I remember I tried to pull up a a yellow page and trying to call people to ask if you need someone to help out. And with my very broken English. And then there was a a guy whom I guess was a Chinese and uh, he had some relatives in Beijing and uh, the relative gave me his telephone number. And this guy uh, uh, was a huge big shot, like a CEO in a big company. And uh, his to- his name, I still remember, is Thomas Tan. Okay. So I was supposed to call up this Thomas Tan to find out if, you know, he would be able to help me with anything, if they're looking for anyone to work. But the thing is, you know, with my pronunciation, and I see Thomas is like T-H-O-M-A-S, right? And so I, 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 I kept on telling this uh, operator, I said, I want to talk to Mr. Thomas. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> Mr. Thomas. So, you know, yeah, they right. just kept on hanging up. Right. I mean, who is this person, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, that kind of struggle was right. every single step, okay? Because you really don't know. But the thing is, if you are bold enough, I think that's the, the only thing you, you have. If you keep on trying and you are bold enough, of course, you are full of, you know, like uh, defects. You're like uh, full of holes and you're full of many things you don't know. But if you just keep on trying and being brave, because you got no choice. This is survival, right? You just have to keep on trying. And comparing what I went through in China, <laughs> it was nothing. I mean, it was already a uh, highlight in my life. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a highlight. 
you know, like uh, I remember not long ago in a in a gala, and uh, someone said, "Oh, you know, let me introduce you to Anne Hu." And the other person said, "Oh, I know her. You know, I know her when she was a uh, an interpreter." I said, "You know what? That was the highlight of my life because you know, before I became an interpreter, I had to you know look for all sorts of other jobs, and I worked as." A waitress and then house cleaning and uh, you know like uh, um, English uh, I mean tutoring English and uh, you know anything you name it for so long and a secretary and finally I became a professional I was uh, like an interpreter uh, interpreting for people you know like coming from China and for America and so on and so forth I mean that was the highlight but even that looking for all those jobs at that point three dollars an hour when I was back in China. You know, like I have five bucks in my pocket and then I spend right, it and I don't right, have anything to eat right, for the rest right. of the month. You know, I mean, you know, to be able to cut something and to have a good food, it was already better, right? So I think it's like one thing leads to another. And then uh, I uh, um, got into the college, uh, a community college. And as a foreign student, I had to pay tuition. So I, I finally found some jobs. I started working. And uh, then I remember for a whole semester that, you know, I was able probably to save about like uh, um, a few thousand dollars. And that all went into paying the tuition. And after the, you don't have to pay rent because you are always a living. So you, you clean house in exchange for your rent. And then uh, you know, I was able to finally get a small car for $2,000 so you can drive around the Bay Area $5.00. Uh, to teach English, uh, to teach Chinese here, five dollars to clean the house there, and so a whole. I worked forty hours a week plus forty hours of full school student courses. So it's like uh, you just have to work harder. And uh, then after that, you know, like uh, I applied from community college into the uh, real university, and then get. Uh, applied for New York University, and then to finish my last year and a half in the uh, in New York University, and it was so expensive. The tuition was thirty some thousand dollars then. So I mean, it was uh, a lot of working. Whatever your grit and your determination, which has really taken you very far, you graduate, you go out on your own, you start companies, and then. And as I said in the introduction, you became one of these co-founding investors of UT Starcom. So that meant that you were going back and forth to China, no? The thing is, after my I graduated from NYU, and uh, I was hired by this company yeah. called uh, uh, Elders. It was uh, probably at that point the number one Australian conglomerate. And so they had an office in New York. So I was in that head office and I started working. That was my first job, right? So, I mean, I was given a telephone and then uh, nothing else saying, well, you know, now uh, China is opening up and uh, then we need you to somehow find, you know, like uh, there's collaboration between our work and uh, our, what we have and what China has and somehow create something within two years. I became the top profit generator for the entire company. Why is that? Very simple. I went back to China and I uh, I visited factory by factory by factory by factory. You know, and then I uh, take down 
their annual supply and their annual production. So what do they buy and what do they sell? And I send all that information back to my colleagues in New York and they make the connection who wants what and who sells what. So I was there signing up the annual contracts in, in China all over the place. And then uh, the barter trade and then turnkey projects and anything possible. That I mean, it was like in the 1985. So the time was perfect. So in two years, I was just putting everything together and the things are happening. So it was very fun. I was traveling a lot and I was back in China. I spoke their language. I understood what they wanted. And uh, I do not quite, I did not quite understand what the U.S. system, uh, how U.S. system or the Western system is functioning. But I got trained in NYU, the business courses and so on and so forth. And also by my colleagues, they constantly yell at me as to, you don't know where Rotterdam <laughs> is? After two years, you know, I made a lot, a lot of money for them and, uh, uh, and also good enough for me. So I figured, you know, it's like a, I don't hate money. I love money. Okay. And, uh, you know, like uh, you have a little bit and everyone should have a little bit. But the thing is, I, I know that I didn't go through all these ups and downs just to become a business person. There has to be something more, right? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, um, of course, I mean, the business career runs by itself, you know, like uh, it's just about all about learning and uh, um, doing and uh, keep on plowing. And uh, just being persistent about it. But I have to ask you, when you would go back and forth to China on business, did you see your family? And if you did, were you giving them money? I wasn't able to go back until I got a green card. Because if I did not have a green card and I went back, Back I wouldn't be able to come back to the U.S. Right. So I had to wait for my green card to come to me, which was in 1985. And uh, I started working for this company in 1985. After I was hired, the first thing, of course, was to make a trip to China. But they constantly, you know, kept me back and said, we feel you just want to go back to China. But I mean, what you're going back to China for? I said, without me going back, I don't know what they want and I don't know what they sell, right? So you have to allow me to go back. After a while, eventually, I mean, the company allowed me to go back to China. So when I, go, when I went back, of course, always try to bring them everything they wanted ever since I began to make money I would send my parents something you know a portion of my earning uh, it's not they wanted it's just like what I wanted to do so you're making your mark in the business world and then as I said in 92 you decided to switch gears you went back to school and what was the catalyst to start getting involved in the film school I know. Well, you know, while I was riding high and I felt, you know, like uh, business or money making is probably really this horrendous thing. But suddenly I ran into this Chinese filmmaker uh, called Chen Kai-ge and uh, who won the uh, um, Palme d'Or. Uh, yeah, the, you know, from France, the year, Palme d'Or. Uh, for his mm-hmm. work, Farewell, My Concubine. And that film also won uh, Golden Globe Best Foreign Film and nominated for uh, Best Film. So I ran into him and became friends. And he was a filmmaker uh, from mainland China and uh, staying here for half a year to, I have, I mean, to have exposure to the U.S. He's a good talker, you know, when he, he tells stories. So you listen to him 
telling about all these uh, stories happening on the set, how they made this shot, how they uh, actually tell the story. And so I, I kept on listening, listening, and I think to myself, you know, I didn't hear anything that he could do. I couldn't. Uh-huh. You know, it was just that. You know, so I asked everything. I knew I, I didn't know anything, but it's not something like if you ask me, can you be a ballet dancer? Can you be a, uh, a opera singer? Right. Yeah. I know I yeah. can't. Mm-hmm. You know, I know I can't. You, am I, you don't you have know, that like, talent. I don't have that right. talent. I know in my heart I can't. But this, you know, like I hear about, you know, like, a, so it's like a writing script. I'm a good writer uh-huh. since I was like a kid. Okay. So I know I can write. And also, it's like visualizing your writing, which mm-hmm. I which I do anyway. Okay, so I feel like visually, I always feel I'm very strong. And uh, then, uh, um, like putting money together, making all the uh, production together. Well, you know, I've been in business for so long, so I know how to raise money or how to deal with money and all mm-hmm. the business side of it. So I know I can handle that side. So, uh, uh, of course, I do not know the trade of, you know, like a photographer, right, I mean, right. like a cinematography or sound or anybody. You have professional people That's you know, right. like helping you, right? So, I mean, you go through the whole list. You figure, well, this is something I could do too. And I want to do. The thing is, it's like, it's so intriguing. And I feel this is something I really was cut off to do. And uh, um, of course, it was a very uh, uh, difficult journey to make that switch because it's like a jumping off the cliff. You quit your job and then you get into That's something right. that you don't really know. <laughs> I'm still like I'm still struggling today. Uh, how many years after? You know, it's like I'm still uh, I'm sticking to making all those films that are only making sense to me and also probably to, you know, like a market in a very unique way. We can always find audience, sure, but the thing is sure. how big is it, right? So, But it has to be true to yourself. You have your own stories to tell and your own passions to share. So was it difficult making your debut, Shadow Magic? It was well-received within a Chinese Academy Award and a, another award for best film. It was totally difficult. And every film was difficult. Not even one film was not difficult. I remember, you know, reading a book from a very famous director, and he went came he came home and began to cry. His wife asked him, you know, why are you crying? He said, you know, it's like a, it's so hard. Not even one step, you know, moving forward, you didn't really have to fight hard. Why do we have to fight so much? It's like, you know, like for example, when making this current film. Confetti, you know, like uh, when I was on the set, because I mean, between this film and the last film, there was a gap for a while because I was really raising my daughter. And, uh, you know, I want to be there for her 100% and I want to watch her every second. You know, like it's like watching a flower opening up. I want to experience that opening process. So I I put aside my film career. But then, you know, like uh, while I was making this film, I was back to the set and uh, I was back to the set and it was an American crew, right? And the American crew was even more difficult than the Chinese crew and the Chinese American crew or American Chinese crew. The Ch- American crew in New York, it was so hard. It was so tough. And because of all these years, I wasn't around and I was reading so much. I was contemplating and I was like doing a lot of uh, meditation and a lot of it, soulful searching. So I 
training myself to become a very peaceful, calm, calm person. And, uh, you know, like uh, uh, very detached in many ways. I felt I would be perfectly all right to deal with any kind of a challenging situation. But once I was on the set, oh my God, after three days, you know, I decided if you don't show your muscles, you're people capable. don't believe yeah. you, you mm-hmm. belong here. They just don't think you belong here. You just have not only to kill, you have to kill double. You know, it's just like, a, you don't show that, forget it. <laughs> okay, so... It's a struggle all the time. But for my first film, of course, uh, for my first film, you know, I had an American DP, an American uh, lighting designer that she brought with her. And I had Beijing Film Studio backing me up. And uh, I had a pure Chinese crew. And uh, I had a few uh, interpreters. And, uh, you know, it was But you so had that hard. under your belt. And, and you knew that so if you could do it once, you could certainly do it again. So why don't you take us on this journey about confetti. Why did you make this movie? And what was it about this film that you needed to make? When my daughter was three years old, I mean, I became a mother. She was born 2006, okay. I wanted to bring her up in China so that she would be like me, okay? Then she could come to America because it's difficult to learn Chinese. I want her first language to be Chinese. And also I want her to learn writing and reading Chinese and to have that part of culture in her. So when she was three years old, however, it was her English teacher. Uh, She was Australian, Jen. And Jen told me that your daughter uh, has something. I said, what was that something? And she said, your daughter has dyslexia. I said, what is that? You know, like never heard about it. And uh, uh, she said, it's like, explain, I don't, I didn't understand. She said, because my sons had that, so I knew. Yeah, you, sh- you can look into it. It's a little complicated. So I searched the internet and in China, there was nothing about it and so on and so forth. So it was like a, always a puzzle until um, she... Um, was seven going to the primary school and it was starting day of her school and I was there and this is how the story began (laughs) you know like this is how this film you know like the story began and everyone was so ready and then the first year she came out she was totally miserable she was beaten and she was nothing she was I mean you know like the environment was just not there for her to right, to cultivate right. students or or children who have special needs so I mean and then I researched about this uh, um, special education situation in the US and determined to bring her back and then to go to a special education school so after first year, I took her back, and then I put her in PS 199. I mean, it was a very good New York City uh, public, public school, school mm-hmm. in Upper West Side. But very soon, I realized the class is about 40-some students, and it was another teacher. And then, you know, my daughter doesn't follow anything, and uh, she was made to feel stupid, and she would, would be pulled out to go to a uh, special ed uh, class uh, one hour every day. And that sure. made her even more miserable because she would be, would not be able to follow any mainstream education. And for that one hour in that special class every day, an hour, she would not be able to learn anything. So, I mean, it was more and more and more difficult. So I searched around and finally got her enrolled in this uh, um, school called Gateway, which is supposed to be the top special 
at school. And I sent her in. And then she was in there for quite some time. I noticed that she didn't actually learn anything. You know, it was like, a, you know, why are we going through all this trouble and put you here and then you are not learning anything? So I had this problem with the school and I was struggling. I was so miserable. But then eventually I see what school is really, um, uh, why school is doing that. They have a system to make it work. It's like if this flower is, is supposed to open in the winter, you don't try to force her gotcha. or it to open gotcha. in spring or in the summer. Right? You uh -huh. have to wait that to happen. And also you have to cultivate that. But the thing is, you have to beef up this, this kid's confidence because without confidence, without that faith in herself, Basically, her whole life is ruined. She won't right. be able to do right. anything well. So every day they're telling her, you are the best, you are the best. So she comes back, she's the best. Mm -hmm. She's mm -hmm. the best for what? Okay. So after a while, and because of her confidence, and then she and they cultivate her to develop all other skills and talents. And in doing that, you know, like when the God closes a door, there's a window uh, opens. But it's up to you to right. find that window. Were you doing this, um, Anne, as a single parent? No, I have my uh, okay. uh, my husband with me, and uh, uh, but I'm the driven one. You know, it's like uh, you know, this is a mother thing. Sure. It's like how far sure. would a mother Well, that's go? very evident <laughs> in the film because. Yeah. May May's mom, Lan, they're obviously, they don't live in a city. They live in a remote area. Yeah, remote and this woman time. is so determined, just like you were, and that with nothing, although there's a teacher in May May's class who speaks English and makes a match for them to stay with his mom in New yeah, York City. Exactly. But the determination and the grit and knowing no one and no one and not knowing the language that comes you know, to New York City. I mean, it's an extraordinary story. That's not so different than your personal story. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I guess it's a stubbornness. You know, it's like a, it's like a, you are just so uh, stubborn. And uh, um, so eventually she learned and she learned well and then she opened up and in time she was confident and she, she's, con right now she's very confident and she uh, graduated. And then she went to this uh, York uh, prep school. They are like a mainstream combined with special ed, which is a perfect place for her to to grow, you know, mm -hmm. transit. Yeah, to transit. And also, you know, she made the uh, headmaster's list last year, her first year. So I feel like a confident that with her, like now she's talking about wanting to go to Harvard. Okay, but <laughs> fine, why not, right? Okay, but I think it's like a, uh, throughout this journey, I just learned so much, not only just how to manage uh, to make her work. It's like through this experience, I personally uh, realized what the, you know, like in China, everyone's super trained. They trained with all kinds of skills. They play all sorts of uh, instruments. They do all the, re uh, everything they do with the precision. With, I mean, it's so trained. It become everyone becomes a diamond. Okay. But here, I think, you know, it's like, a, it's okay to become a little apple. I want my, my daughter to become a little apple now. In my mind, I really believed everyone should be a diamond in the past. I wanted to be a diamond. Everything has to be the best, the best, best, and you're able to uh, do anything. Okay. 
Uh, well, you know, it's like a diamond is really about like keep on, I guess, you know, like how diamond really actually became like in mm-hmm. the natural environment. I guess it's like a, it, there's a lot of tough love there, <laughs> right? Okay. Your life can be a small little apple. I mean, it has juice, it has smell, uh-huh. you know, it's like fresh. Why can't you just be an apple to be consumed and to live once? So I, I, I think my, my mentality has changed totally. Uh, instead of a, uh, to be driven for success, if she's living happily and uh, being very uh, rich in terms of its capacity. I'm curious, has confetti been shown in China? It has. The reception was fantastic. I mean, uh, because of COVID, you know, we tried to launch three times. And each time then, since we launched, and it was shut off the, the, the theaters. But the thing is, everyone, they watched. And it's something they never realized before because it's a new vision. I think my film, maybe it's not perfect or, or the best in terms of uh uh, cinematic uh, languages and uh, you know like uh, academic depths and but I mean I, I do try but since you know like I didn't get the training from the university instead I went back to school and I went back to NYU as right. my second right. course of life so I wasn't highly polished with my skills but my vision is always ahead of time. I, I'm proud of my visions, okay, and I'm proud of my messages. So you know, since my first film, Shadow Magic, I believe it was a shock uh, to the people there. Um, and then the second film uh, is about women. It's a little difficult to understand, uh, but I think women, developed women, uh, feel more related to that film. It's really about a vision. But this film, again, I feel it's really about a vision for the Chinese people. Because finally, I see that they understand life should be, can be different. It doesn't have to be like right, a right. You know, single-minded kind of but success. But I wonder also, in terms of politics, if that played any role in this film, particularly recently with all this discrimination and all this viciousness against Asian Americans, where where did that factor into your film? Politics are on both sides. Okay, I'm glad you asked me the question on this side. Okay, which is much easier to answer. I feel like since COVID, this uh, uh, Asian hate became uh, apparent. I think because people relate to their loss, to this virus and the virus. Yeah, it was all the Chinese fault. Yeah, it was all their fault. And it it was perpetuated by a former president, for goodness sake, of ours. In a sense, I could understand that. And, uh, but for many years, I know that the Asian communities may not be the most tolerant toward other minorities, uh, in a sense. So, and then I also know that, in the U.S. specifically, if you don't stand up for your own right, no one's going to do that for you. So when this Asian uh, hate situation happened, I do feel that, you know, like uh, um, you have just to do two things. One is that you have to work tall and then you have to uh, protest. You have to, you know, stay firm with your rights. And uh, I really, 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 truly, truly, truly appreciate 
you know, people around me and what this country is doing for the Asian communities, because I know not every country is doing that, you know, for their minority people. Yeah, being supportive. And there are plenty sure. of hate to minorities right. in all countries around the world. So here, you know, like I see so many people you know, just voluntarily automatically responded to something that's not fair. Okay. And to me, I think this is what America is all about. And that's why I always ask, what did you do for your country? I mean, what your country and your people did for you. I feel this is what America and also American people did for us, for the Asian communities. And Asian communities, yes, they are like a very hardworking. They are like a great, you know, value, you know, like a family and a study hard and, and you know, education to their children and, uh, and a lot of those. So um, at this critical moment, I think I personally, and I would also encourage other people in my community, you know, like is to, Try your best to mingle and set yourself up being that example to represent the Asian community properly and proudly and, uh, you know, like uh, beautifully. So, you know, everyone starts with themselves, right? And if you blame other people, they think you are not worthy. So just prove you're worthy, but stand firm. It's not like you become a coward. Or you say, oh, yes, yes, I lick your ass. No, I mean, you you, st- you stand strong. No, you are wrong. And this is what I'm doing. I think that's like uh, um, what we, from my end, should do. I hate, I never like to point fingers. You, 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 you. Just you to know, lay I mean, blame, you mean. Yeah, it's like I don't like to keep on, you know, it's like uh, when you argue and point fingers, then I don't think it ever worked when it comes down to personal relationship, but maybe, you know, as a whole community or as a country, you may have to do that aggressively to defend your rights because that's a different game. And I do see that African-Americans and also Muslim uh, Americans, they're doing a great job like defending themselves and, uh, and earning their rights back, which I think that's like setting up the examples for Asian communities. And probably, you know, like uh, relatively speaking to them, I think Asian communities did much less. And uh, because yeah. we're mm-hmm. trained differently, mm-hmm. you know, it's like a, like a, the Confucian, Confucianism, I mean, the Taoism, 5,000 years of uh, cultural history, they tell you there's a reason for everything. And uh, um, how to be a gentleman, how to be a lady, how to train your heart to be this, calm place and then you know you it's like about self-perfection instead of you know like uh, to blame others to want to bring change so it's a different mentality i feel wow that's a really great way to end <laughs> and who uh, it's really been a pleasure and an eye-opener to meet you and i wasn't off base here when i said to you initially at the beginning of this conversation that you ought to think about chronicling your story on film. (laughs) I personally find myself very uninteresting. So uh, maybe someone else will do the work. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let us be the judge of that. I don't find you uninteresting at all. And who I can't really thank you enough for opening up our world and sharing your story and your passions. And I saw Confetti and it's a very, very powerful film. You did a great job. You really did. Thank you so much, Sandy. I had such a great time talking with you. It's like talking with an old friend. Oh, that's always nice to hear. 
Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein.